tonight okay let's let's enter in lord i thank you for hearing and answering the prayers over this word tonight i thank you even now for your holy spirit that's here moving upon every single person that's going to be listening or watching i thank you lord even now the precious holy spirit just moving upon us to give good soil of hearts and minds and lives lord i thank you for speaking through me the word of the lord is living seeds of truth sown into that good soil watered by the holy spirit take root grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. In the winds of your spirit, carry this out among the nations. It'll get everywhere it's supposed to accomplish, everything it's supposed to accomplish. This will go forth in power. And Lord, we just thank you for it. And I thank you that Jesus said the birds of the air try to steal the seed, but we have authority to trample on snakes and scorpions, overcome all the power of the enemy. So as a church, we agree together. Anything that would try to hinder this word from getting where it's supposed to, accomplishing what's supposed to in any way, we command in Jesus' name that it be bound right now and you will back off. And Lord, I thank you for the angels just clearing that out. And this will go forth in power. And Lord, we thank you that the word of the Lord, the Bible says this, it will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish what it's supposed to. We thank you for it. We stand in agreement. And I thank you for speaking through me everything that needs to be said tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so if you're taking some notes, I feel like there's going to be several things I'm going to talk about tonight. I'm not really going to stick really closely to this per se, but there's a lot of different things I want to cover. And <clears throat> I want to talk about here at the beginning, just the mystery of the tree which is really interesting in the scripture. There's probably a lot of things that, that I'll say that maybe it will cause you to think about other things, okay? But it's interesting to me that everything began in the Garden of Eden and it was all centered around trees. It's, the Bible says that there was a tree of life that they would eat from. And I guess if they were still eating from that tree today, they would still be alive and young and healthy. There was something in that tree that brought life, but there was also a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But isn't it interesting that they were trees? And I find it interesting also that Christ came to die on, Galatians 3.13 says, to die on a tree. Where Adam and Eve were in a garden and they basically said, God, not your will, but my will be done. It was a rebellion. And they ate of the fruit of a tree. Jesus also was in the garden of Gethsemane. And he had to wrestle with it. And he said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And he submitted himself to the Father. And while he's there praying and, and his sweat became like drops of blood. But it was centered around this interesting aspect of kind of reversing. So... What Adam and Eve rebelled in a garden, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father in a garden. <clears throat> but the Bible says in, under Moses, God made sure and put in the Bible that cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And so under the law of Moses, if you read the scriptures, you can see stories of like in, when Joshua invaded the promised land, etc., that there would be people that were accursed that would be hung on a tree. And Galatians 3.13 says that Christ became a curse for us, hanging on a tree. 
And through that, the divine exchange. Every curse and everything that was due us went on him that we can pass out from under those things and we move into the blessings given to Abraham. But that divine exchange happened on a tree. And the Bible says about God's people that we can be like this, not saying that everybody is, but potentially we're supposed to be like trees planted by the waters. Isn't that interesting? And if you study the tabernacle, you see that we are like a living, breathing, walking tabernacle of the Holy Spirit today. But under Moses, there was this beautiful tabernacle that was a replica of something in heaven. But much of it was wood, acacia wood, that was overlaid with gold. Isn't that interesting that in a sense, God used wood of a tree to speak of us? So there's just something in this. I, I find it like mysterious in a good way. And it's something I just want to put out there that you begin to maybe think about and connect the dots on your own just to give you some things to research and study. But there's something about the tree of the Lord. And isn't it interesting that we also view our family lineage as a family tree? I don't know if you've ever really thought about this in a scriptural sense. But when you, many people like years ago, my grandmother had this huge Bible and it was sitting on her coffee table and I remember looking at it but if you looked at the front they had like a tree in the Bible and you would write down names of your ancestry going back and you, you know you kept up with it and it was called a family Bible and it had a, a tree in it that you wrote down the names of your family and you maybe wrote down significant dates of for example when somebody accepted the Lord etc but it was drawn in there as a tree so i want to just show you something now this will be something that is is probably not new to a lot of people that have been with river of life for a while but there's people that are maybe going to watch this that have never seen me talk about this so i want to talk about this for a few minutes and then i want to get off this topic and talk about some other things but in the tabernacle of moses when you were in the outer court area, you came in, it was open. There was no ceiling over the outer court. It was open, so it was lit with natural sunlight. And it was all about the blood of the offerings and the water. So it's basically about salvation. The blood of Jesus, what he did on the cross, and the waters of baptism. Salvation. For example, blood and water flowed out of Jesus' side. If you've ever thought about some of this tonight a mystery that Adam whenever his time God said it's not good for man to be alone and wanted to create a wife what did he do he took the wife out of the ribcage out of the side well, Jesus was paying for at the cross he was paying for a bride and also isn't it interesting that at a birth the water breaks there's blood and water as a child is brought forth into the earth Again, the blood and water that came out of Jesus' side was him purchasing children of God. Okay, So this is the outer court. It's all about salvation, but it's natural, natural sunlight. Because if you stay there, you just 
How, how many have known, God bless them, have known people that they just, they got saved and that's the end of it. They never really went deep in God. All they ever talk about is just that. But you can go deeper in the Lord where God really begins to show you things. How many since you've maybe been coming here, you began to see some things that you've never seen before in your life? You're like, wow, I mean, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that helps us. So what happened was when you were in the outer court, you would look at this tent and it was called the uh, the holy place and the back end of it was called the holy of holies but you would look at it and it was overlaid with skins and you would go inside this tent so you would leave the outer court and you would have to part the tent open and go into it and when you got inside of it it was really beautiful i mean there was a smell of incense that was burned in there morning and evening but you would look up and there would be these cherubim interwoven into the fabric, so it looked like, symbolically, like angels all around you. And to the right was the table of showbread where there was unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. And it was a picture and type of our covenant meal that we take together, the Holy Communion. On the left was the menorah, which was supposed to stay lit every day. And then right in front of you was the altar of incense. And the incense was made of four parts ground up, and it represents praise and worship, prayer, and intercession. And the priest would stand there every morning and every evening would stand there and burn incense, and he would pray for the nation of Israel. And all around Israel, people knew the timing that was going on, and they would turn and face the temple and pray with him. Of course, once a year, he went in the Holy of Holies. So there was that second veil that had to be crossed beyond, and you would go in there, and there was the Ark of the Covenant there, and that Ark represented God's throne. It was where the glory was. The whole point of the tabernacle was it was a journey to go into the manifest presence of the Lord. But when you left the outer court of natural sunlight and you moved into the holy place, there was nothing in there to light that place except the menorah. So if this was not lit, you would not be able to see anything in the holy place. You understand? So you left natural sunlight and you moved into divine revelation. It was no longer just natural. Now it was lit by the menorah, which represents God's word and his spirit, which I'm going to show you. So <clears throat> just like I was talking about a family tree, when you look at the menorah, this represents God's family tree, which is amazing. Some of you that are artists could probably draw this thing and do a really good job. But I want you to really think about this, and I, I won't dwell on this too long because I've taught on this before. But the, the menorah was beat with just one chunk of gold. It was pure gold, so there was no wood in it. Remember, wood spoke of humanity. So this, this is pure gold which speaks of just purely from god and they would they hammered it out and beat it into this and it, so it wasn't too large because the chunk of gold wasn't too big it might have just been something a little bit bigger than this actually but what they did was there had to be a base on it for it to stand up straight now i want you to notice some things that there was one center branch that everything was connected to and that's important then 
there was three branches on each side that were brought into that center branch, okay? Now, here's why, why I don't want to lose you, but how many of you guys have ever looked at a tree around springtime when it starts budding? They're beautiful, uh, but there's, in Israel, the almond tree is the first to bud. You ought to Google the almond trees in Israel in spring. They're beautiful. They're white, beautiful white flowers. But this was like an almond tree, but also like an olive tree, both, which is really interesting in itself. But the almond aspect, this is what God told them to do. On the center branch, you were supposed to have a little knob of bud in a bowl that was beat into it. So just like, for example, on the trees, every spring, those little knobs and bud, and it begins to break open, and these beautiful flowers come out, okay? God told him, he said, I want you to beat into this on the center branch and not bud in the bowl, and not bud in the bowl, not bud in the bowl, not bud in the bowl. So there was four of them, and there were three. So that equals 12. 12 in the Bible is a number for government. This center branch is really the key because the Bible talks about this so much. So when God cut covenant with Abraham, this is, this is the base. This is the foundation. When God told Abraham to cut those animals in half and walk in that bloody soil, he appeared to Abraham and he spoke to him. He was cutting a covenant with him. And he said, I will make you a blessing to all nations. And basically, if I could paraphrase, it was saying, you're going to be, it's through you that salvation will come. If I could paraphrase. So that, that foundation, that, that root system, if you will, of this tree, goes back to the faith in that covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Does that make sense? That's the roots. That's the foundation, the base. But the prophet Isaiah saw something really interesting. And he said, out of the stump of Jesse will come a branch. How many remember reading that? And it was talking about Jesus. And it said about him, it said the government, remember 12 here? The government would be on his shoulders. And it says that the sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, Wisdom, revelation, counsel, might, knowledge, the fear of the Lord, the fullness of the Holy Spirit would be upon him. And that he would delight in the fear of the Lord. Out of the stump, out of the root system that God gave, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were looking, who had covenant, were looking for the coming of the Messiah. And the nation of Israel came from those loins. Out of that foundation, shot up, a branch, the Messiah came in the fullness of time. The government was on his shoulders. Is everybody seeing something here tonight? The branch of the Lord, the arm of salvation. This center branch speaks of Jesus. He's the centerpiece of God's family tree. Now, before Jesus came, there was a dispensation there of the law and it was under Moses and, and of course the Jewish people were the primary uh, caretakers, if you will, of the covenant 
And it was like before Christ came, before that, so to my right, let's do it that way, it seems like there was two Jews for every one Gentile that was brought into this. You remember? But after Christ died on the cross and he came on the other side of the cross, to go to the other side, it's like two Gentiles for every one Jew. And you can see in that the sovereignty of God, can't you? And it makes a little more sense when you read Romans 9, 10, and 11. When it talks about the unbelieving Jew was a branch broken off and cast away and a wild olive branch of a Gentile was brought into Christ and engrafted in. And it's saying that now Ephesians, the Bible says we are all together collectively one new man, both Jew and Gentile in Christ. And there's no big eyes or little U's. Nobody's better than the other. One branch is not superior to another branch. So the faith, that foundation that God brought to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that came into the nation of Israel, out of Israel sprung forth a branch of salvation, Christ, the Messiah. And everybody before Christ came that put their faith in the, the one who was to come one day and died in righteousness, believing for him who was to come, they were in this family tree on the other side of the cross. Now we look back at what Jesus did past tense and we put our faith in him and through that we're born again and we're brought into the family tree of God. But either before Christ or after he came, it was still a death of the righteous who were looking to the cross for salvation. You understand? But this is God's family tree. Now, I'm going to show you a mystery. This really impressed me when I saw this. So you remember the number 12. How many love math? Let's see if there's one hand. Oh, there is somebody. Oh, I know Ben. Okay, how many hate math? Okay. Well, you know, math is necessary. Okay, so I don't like it either, but it's necessary. Here we go. So you have the center branch. You have 12. But on each one of these smaller branches... There was three, a not button a bowl, not button a bowl, not button a bowl. So three times three is nine. So watch, this is important. You take the center branch of 12 and nine, nine, and nine, what do you get? You get 39. How many books are in the Old Testament? Y'all look this way, hear me. Don't let me lose you. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. So you have this center branch over you have the 39 books of the Old Testament. Then you have 9, 9, and 9. You have the 27 books of the New Testament. So even in the menorah, let me show you something. This is a mystery. Because see, as a part of God's family tree, a people of blood covenant, that it goes back. That's why Galatians says that all, to all of us, Christ became a curse for us. And we're redeemed from the curse of the law. And we come into the blessings given to Abraham. So it's not just what Jesus did on the cross, but through that, we're even brought into this root system of the covenant that was cut with Abraham and the blessings of Abraham become our inheritance. But outside of that, as, as, it, as we begin to see all this unfolding, God gave Moses this menorah and it, in this, it predicted 
that you and I would be holding one day a 66-book Bible. Isn't that something? So we, as God's blood covenant people that are brought into his family tree, what has God given us as a gift? He's given us his word. Amen? So this is also interesting if you look at this and you look at the tabernacle of Moses. When you go into the holy place and you see that table of showbread where there's unleavened bread and there's the fruit of the vine and it speaks obviously of the communion table, but it also speaks of Passover, doesn't it? Unleavened bread, the fruit of the vine. And when you go to the left and you go over here and you look at the menorah that was set up and lit, it speaks of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost. Also in Hebrew, it's called Shavuot, the Feast of Pentecost. And then when you go in front, right before the veil, and there's the altar of incense where the incense is brought up, it speaks of the Feast of Tabernacles. So why is this important? Because when you look at the menorah, how many knows that only God could make all this fit? It's amazing. When you look at, you, you go past Passover and you move to Pentecost, when God came down on the very first Pentecost there ever was, Shavuot, he came down on Mount Sinai, the mountain shook, the people of God trembled, Moses took the blood of the offerings that were there, sprinkled it on the people, and he was like a mediator there where God was speaking to the nation of Israel, giving them, what did God give them? He cut covenant with them, and God gave Israel what? His word. This was the very first time that the word of God was given into the earth, and he gave the first five books of our Bible, the Torah, and he gave it first to the nation of Israel. On what day? The day of Pentecost. Then, 1,500 years later, now it was time. Jesus had died on the cross, raised from the dead. And now it was time for there to be a major shift that we were no longer going to be under just the law. But now we were moving into a, a time of grace and the church age. And whenever the day of what fully came? The day of Pentecost fully came. So Jesus kept Passover with the disciples, and then he died on the cross on the day of Passover, raised from the dead, and it was 50 days from that, that now on the day of Pentecost. So 1,500 years after the word of God was given, what was given? The Holy Spirit. Who, who received the Holy Spirit? God's covenant people. So this menorah represents Pentecost, but it represents the word of God, which is a light under your feet, right? But it also represents the Holy Spirit. And so just like you see on here, you see the, the spirit of the Lord, wisdom, revelation, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, and you see these little uh, tongues of fire. What came in on the day of Pentecost? Little tongues of fire. Isn't that awesome? The Holy Spirit came in, he filled them, he baptized, they were baptized in the Holy Ghost, they spoke in tongues, and little tongues of fire appeared on their heads. 
And what God was saying was, you're my blood covenant people. You're a part of my family tree. So not only am I giving you my word, but I'm also giving you my spirit to empower you. But Jesus told him, he said, you need to wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power. Don't start the ministry until you receive that clothing of power from on high. So when Jesus ministered in the earth, he did not function. This is going to shock some people, but he did not do everything that he did by the power of the sonship so much as this. The Bible says that he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because he came in a way to be an example to us. So if Jesus did everything, everything he did, everything was, he could only do it because he was the son of God, we would look at him and think that we could never do these things. We could never be anything like this. And, but Jesus didn't do that. He humbled himself all the way down and he called himself the son of man. And everything he did, he just simply did what he saw the father doing. He spoke with the, heard the father speaking, but everything he did was in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we could follow his example. And he said, greater works will you do because I go to the father. Does that make sense? So he did things by the spirit. Now, this is important because Jesus, when he came, the book of John says this. He said that Jesus was the word made flesh. Did you ever think about that? Jesus was a living, breathing, breathing tabernacle. Just like under Moses, whenever the tabernacle, it had wood overlaid with gold, but then it was overlaid with skin. You and I have a skeletal system, bones, and yet as a skeletal system, we're wrapped in skins or wrapped in skin. And just like the tabernacle of Moses, we ourselves are like a living, breathing tabernacle. Well, Jesus was our example. When he came, it said about him, the word became flesh and in the Greek tabernacled among us. So he was the word, but also, now hear what I'm saying because this is really important. Jesus never began his ministry just stepping out as the son of God until he was baptized in water and clothed with the spirit. I'm trying to word this the right way so nobody takes what I'm saying the wrong way. Jesus needed and depended on the Holy Spirit to begin his ministry because he was setting an example for you and I and he was going to go to the Father and release the Holy Spirit to us. And he said, even as I was sent, I'm sending you. The works that I did, you will do. So when Jesus, being the Word made flesh, tabernacling among us, walking among us as the living, breathing Word of God, he submitted himself to go to his cousin John. In Hebrew, his name is Yochanan, and he was a direct descendant of Aaron, which made him really technically, in God's perspective, he was the high priest of Israel. But because of Rome and politics, Caiaphas was. But Caiaphas was put there by man. How many knows there are many, many times that man put people in power and God didn't? 
but John was actually a descendant of Aaron and as such the high priest but not only was John a priest but he was also a prophet and he seemed to be a prophet in the order of Elijah and it said about John that he had the spirit of Elijah upon him I believe the spirit of Elijah is a descriptive term that speaks of when the Holy Spirit comes in his fullness because the Holy Spirit comes not only as the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of wisdom and revelation but when he comes and counts on might when he comes in knowledge and the fear of the Lord when he comes in the fullness the sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit I believe that that refers to the spirit of Elijah so John being a priest and a prophet now has his cousin Jesus come to him now Jesus was known as what the son of David what is that a king what do you have here priest prophet king Jesus comes to him now it's time and John looks at him and says look I'm I'm not worthy to baptize you and Jesus said this needs to happen to fulfill all righteousness so John submits to it did you know that the passing of a priesthood when it was time for the high priest to turn he turned the age of 50 it was his time to retire and now for his son to take his place that one of the ways that the priesthood was passed was through water immersion that was part of it so basically John knew that I'm about to decrease and he's about to increase my time is now coming to an end I was a voice in the wilderness I was to point to him but now he's here so Jesus comes as a king do you remember this about Melchizedek Jesus was going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek Melchizedek is Melech is king Zedek is righteousness it's a priestly kingly thing so Jesus comes to him as a king and now John is standing there as a priest and a prophet and he immerses Jesus in water and when Jesus comes up the Holy Spirit settled upon him I believe what happened there was John passed to Jesus that you're now everything that I function under is passing to you and I need to decrease and you're going to become the priest the prophet and the king and everything's going to be on you I was he was a forerunner does this make sense Jesus went under the water as Melech but he came up as in the order of Melchizedek he came up as a kingly priest the priesthood came on him the spirit of Elijah came upon him as a prophet and of course he was the son of David a king is this making sense I'm not losing anybody yet so Jesus was the living breathing word of God but now the fullness of the Holy Spirit was on him and just just a little side thing my opinion but God told John as a prophet he said the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit come he's the one if go back and reread the story I don't think anybody else saw the Holy Spirit come on Jesus but John and not only not only that but I don't think see it said it came on him in bodily form like a dove it didn't say it was a bird I personally think just my opinion 
the Holy Spirit came in bodily form and came on Jesus in bodily form gently the way a, a dove would sit, land on a branch, like gently. It wasn't a rough thing. Jesus wasn't thrown down on the ground or something. It was a gentle thing. But <clears throat> the Holy Spirit came upon him. And when John saw the Holy Spirit descend on him, he knew this is the Messiah. This is the one. And that's when he started saying, I've got to decrease. He's got to increase. I've been waiting for this guy. And to his disciples, he's like, you need to quit following me. You need to start following him. I got you up to a certain point. I baptized unto righteousness. I was getting you ready for him. Now he's here. So the point is, Jesus in every way is the Word and the Spirit, right? He, had, he was the Word of God. He had the Spirit of God. And he said, "When I, I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to send the promised Holy Spirit to you. And go, those of us that are part of God's family tree, we have to have both the Word of God and the Spirit of God. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm about to bring this all together. But let me give you a couple quick things. Putting an emphasis back on worship and prayer. See, the problem is, is that Jesus said about the church, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Let me say it again. My house will be called a house of prayer. Unfortunately, many places of worship, prayer is not a priority. How many knows what I'm talking about? It's a house of discipleship and all these other things and all of it's good and important. But the emphasis Jesus put was on prayer. See, when you begin to make your house a house of prayer, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit begins to get really strong there. This is what is lacking. I'm going to get into, before I close out, I'm going to get into the importance of both the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Because you can be a teacher of the word, but still there could be no move of the Holy Spirit and people are not really receiving everything that they need. And let me say this to ministers. We have to put an emphasis on our own personal study of the word and prayer. And we see this in the book of Acts because there became a time when this controversy was coming up about distributing money to the poor and the disciples basically told the people said look we can't sit around doing this like you know trying to distribute money all the time and deal with all these issues you need to pick some people that can handle that and we'll pray for them but listen to what they said in Acts 6 verse 4 but we must give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. They were saying that we're, we're in danger here of getting totally distracted from the importance of what God's actually called us to do by getting so caught up with, with unimportant tasks. Look, they said, choose seven men among you to be deacons, which means servants, and we'll pray for them, and they can be over that. They can oversee that so that we can be freed up to, to study and preach the word and, and continually given over to prayer. And I believe that they saw that in Christ because Jesus, if you read the book of Mark, he would go off early in the morning as was his custom to pray. And, and some of the disciples came to him and saw him out there. 
And they knew that Jesus went from one place of prayer to the next place of prayer. And I think that they began to conclude that his prayer life had a lot to do with the power that he was operating under. I think that they began to put the dots together because they asked him, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples, now you need to teach us. And of course, he taught them. And let me say another thing here. We need to have unstructured services to flow with the move of the Holy Spirit. One of the problems is man's control. Man, every time, whether it's pride or fear or both, man wants to be in control. And the Holy Spirit is not going to sit around arm wrestling. If you want, you want control, the Holy Spirit will simply leave and go somewhere else and let you have control. And it'll be a dead, dry, boring, religious thing. And let me say something else. We have to get to know the Holy Spirit. And 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says what? The love of God. And, and it says the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I believe it's the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is the, the, he's just as much God as the Father and the Son, but he's a person. And the Holy Spirit, his manifest presence can come in, but we have to get to know him and we have to know how to cooperate with him. He's got to be able to speak to us and lead us. And it seems to imply in Romans 8, that those that are sons of God are led by the Spirit. But sonship in the Hebrew culture meant that you were of age of maturity. You were no longer a little child. Now you were, in that culture, bar mitzvah, and you were moving into sonship. You were of age. I think what it's saying to us is this. For us to grow up in Christ, we have got to learn to be led by the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but the Greek implies continually led. It's not like you were led 20 years ago once. It's saying there that you need to be led by the Holy Spirit daily. A church has got to be led by the Holy Spirit. Then you know what happens in Acts chapter, I believe, 15. It says that when it came time for the church to make a significant decision because the gospel was going outside of Jerusalem and Judea and was going to the Gentiles, and they needed to figure out how to handle that. And when it came time for them to need to make a very serious, significant decision that was going to affect the entire church world, it says this, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit that we do this. They knew to, to consult the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, I don't think enough of that's going on. I think that man many times is making decisions and running things like a business, and the last person they're going to consult is the Holy Spirit about anything. Is there y'all hear what I'm saying? And because man wants to be in control and man thinks they've got it figured out and man wants to run it like a business, the Holy Spirit will back off and let them do it. But here's the problem. They may be successful in the eyes of men, 
but they're not seeing Book of Acts biblical Christianity the way Jesus did it. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus' very first thing he did when he was clothed with the Holy Spirit and he began to go uh, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil where he fasted 40 days and had to be tempted in every way that Eve was tempted. Remember that Eve, it, the Bible says that there was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The pride that Satan told her you can be like God. The lust of the eyes that she saw the fruit look good and the lust of the flesh, I'm sure she was hungry. Jesus was out there hungry. And Satan took him up and showed him the kingdom, said, I'll give you all this, the, the pride of life, pride. I'll give you all this if you'll worship me. He said, I'm not going to bow down to anybody but God, the Father. And then he said, what was it, the lust of the flesh? If you're hungry, why don't you turn this stone to to bread etc you get it you get the idea every way that eve failed jesus overcame but at the same time what you got to understand is the holy spirit when jesus finished that time the bible says the holy spirit led him there and then as he came out the bible says he came out in the power of the holy spirit and what was the first thing he did he had a direct confrontation with the demon spirit in somebody and they were delivered from a demon by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is, has had so many times that getting away from the way Jesus did it. Jesus' ministry was not really complicated. It was the preaching of the word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. The results, people were giving their life to him healings and miracles were breaking out people were delivered from the devil and then he said eventually they would be baptized in the holy spirit in matthew 3 11 it says that that christ would be the baptized and it says these signs would follow them that believe that we would speak in new tongues that's the baptism of the holy spirit we would lay hands on the sick and we would cast out demons in the name of jesus and so the ministry is not as complicated as what man tries to make it. Man wants to make it everything but those things. But they're not seeing the eternal fruit and the transformed lives that they could see. That's why they have to depend on so many other things. And I'm going to tell you, I've seen it so many times. The different 12-step programs, all the other things that churches now offer, and there's nothing wrong with a program in and of itself, but all these other things many times is to substitute the true preaching of the word under the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're not seeing the things that Jesus saw. And Jesus said, as I will send, I send you, and you'll see greater things. So why aren't we seeing them? We need to press into that. Thank God for the things that we have seen, but how many knows there's more? How many, seriously, River of Life, how many are hungry to see more than what we've seen? Amen. So let me kind of close this out. So God's family tree, God has given us what? As his family, his word, and his spirit. So what do we need to do? 
we need to be preaching the true word of God, the whole counsel of God, without compromising any part of it. Preach the whole thing. If people have a problem with it, they don't have a problem with me and you. They have a problem with God's word. And if you have a problem with God's word, God's word is not wrong. You are. So it's either we're going to line our life up with the word or we're not. And I think about the people that like to go in and they get their scissors out and they don't like tongues. So they're going to cut out the scriptures about tongues or they don't want to believe healing is for today. So they cut those scriptures out or they want to think you can be gay and go to heaven when you die. So they go in and cut out those scriptures that specifically say you can't. The word of God will offend. But here's, at the end of the day, this is how I want to close this out. This is Satan's great substitute, and I, I want to just expose this, and then we'll pray. Derek Prince said something I'll never forget. He said, the greatest enemy to your destiny in God is witchcraft. And the way he said it was, he said this. He said, if I was to ask you what's the greatest hindrance to your destiny, he said, if I was to give you 12 guesses, you'd probably never guess it. But he said, in actual fact, it's witchcraft. So you have to understand what witchcraft actually is. Because most people think of a, a lady with a black pointy hat, stirring a cauldron and all that. Let's break it down just for a moment. See, God has authority. And God has invested his authority in the family. He's invested his authority in the church. And any time that... God's authority is replaced by someone else that man put there that's an illegitimate authority. And you specifically see that with John the Baptist who should have been the high priest. But man came in and man didn't want that and man put Caiaphas who was the guy that was overseeing the kangaroo court that put Jesus to the cross. Whereas God's true authority was the one that saw Jesus. Are y'all listening and looking this way? Don't miss out. Don't get distracted. God's true authority was the one that in John that saw Jesus and knew he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But Caiaphas called him a blasphemer and wanted to kill him. Did y'all catch that? Let me say that again. God's authority, the true high priest of Israel in John, knew who Jesus was. Man's replacement called him a blasphemer and wanted to put him to death. Anytime you're dealing with illegitimate authority that God has not sanctioned, it was something that man or the devil or both replaced God's authority with a different authority you're looking at witchcraft beginning right there. That's like, for example, God has invested his authority in the home to rest upon the husband, and it says specifically for the wife to submit unto the husband in everything as unto the Lord, and children unto obey their parents. Submit to that authority. Anytime that the husband is removed from that authority and the wife begins to run the home, that's a Jezebel spirit and it's witchcraft. Hello? And you see it all the time. 
you see it in the church. You see it in, in, in uh, various denominations. Politics come in. See, the early church used to really pray. Let's go back to Jesus. He spent the night in prayer, and then he picked the 12. Did he pick them just randomly? He heard from the Father. In the same way, the early church would really pray about it, and they would choose people based on praying about it and believing that they heard from God. And they would put people in a position of authority. But now, unfortunately, you see many times in churches and in denominations, and I'm not talking about just one, all of them, you see too much of, of it being a popularity contest. It's about how much money they make or how good looking they are or whatever else, who, what friends they have, and they're put there by man. Is this making sense? And unfortunately, it's not God's authority, it's man's authority. And just like Caiaphas, most of the time, they're going to miss the move of God. You know what has tragically happened so many times when the Holy Spirit began to really move powerfully? Man would rise up and put an end to it and then control it. That's illegitimate authority. Who in their arrogance could possibly think that they can put a stop to the Holy Spirit who is God, kick him out the door, and then take over? That's illegitimate authority. And whenever you're dealing with illegitimate authority, you're inevitably going to deal, deal with, excuse me, ungodly control. And when you deal with illegitimate authority and ungodly control, that right there is going to be the essence of witchcraft. I've seen too many times where churches are controlled by one or two people or one or two families that want a power play. Every time they don't get their little way, they get mad. They start calling everybody on the phone. All of a sudden, they're going to start blackballing, whether it be the pastor or somebody else. They're going to put them in the worst possible light as being the most horrible human being that's ever been. They, they, in their mind, they're now the spawn of Satan himself. And they're going to get everybody they can to hate their guts and oust them. And they're going to make threats. They're going to leave. They're going to take their money with them. They're going to take everybody they can with them. If they don't get their little way, they are going to cause as much destruction as they can. That is a Jezebel spirit and it's witchcraft. And it's meant to manipulate and control that entire church. And sadly, in many places across this nation, around the world, Satan has a few people or a few families in every church just about that is exactly what I just described. And it's got that church locked up where it can never really do. Listen, did you know churches have a destiny? But many never fulfill their destiny because they're hindered by witchcraft right there in the church. How many denominations, all of them, not one, all, how many of them have illegitimate authority, people put in power that should not be there, they were put there by man. 
And there's so much control that every time God's wanting to do something, there's going to be different people here and there that rise up. Y'all, please look this way, and y'all hear me, please. Look this way. This is important tonight. I feel like there's something trying to distract. As, as little moving around as possible, look this way, okay? Every time God's wanting to do something in denominations, something will stir up and there'll usually be a handful of people that are going to rise up and protest and try to shut down. And that's happened in revivals. Did you know, I, I've got to be careful because I know too much information and I shouldn't say it in this context on the internet in a sermon. But you know, there's been major moves of God, major moves that affected millions of people that were shut down by denominations and those that are leaders of the denomination. They came in and they put an end to it. They said, this is enough. Man's control, it goes back many times to illegitimate authority and ungodly control. Is this making sense? And just as God's wanting us as his people to begin to speak the word of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit and function in that true authority that God's invested in us, there is a counterfeit authority that wants to rise up of the enemy and put an end to it. Even in the Christian institutions and organizations that are out there, usually, unfortunately, there's a couple families somewhere in the shadows that they, they will rise up and they want to stop things that God's trying to do. And they don't, those organizations do not understand why they are not seeing revival. Denominations are not understanding why aren't we seeing the move of God that we read about in history. Churches, why aren't we not fulfilling our destiny and seeing a move of God? Might I ask this question, is there witchcraft in your midst? Are there people that are controlling your, your true leaders and controlling churches? And they're manipulating things. And every time God does try to do something, they rise up in protest and try to hinder it. They start causing all kinds of division. I remember there was a particular church, a particular denomination out in East Texas, and I knew the people involved. I knew the leadership. Man, every time they go through pastors, and every time they get somebody in there, it was the same group of people that would start coming back, they would rise up. They create Every time God tried to do something, those people would stir up all kinds of problems. And they, they never could get the victory. That church stayed in bondage to that. And finally, the leadership of that denomination began to look at that church and realize, look, we got to step in and do something. So they started investigating it, and they found out it was the same group of people. Every time they'd send a pastor in, he couldn't even stay long. They'd, they'd send somebody else in. They would send somebody else in. And it was like the same problem every time. It was those people that would rise up in protest and they would kill whatever God was trying to do. So the leadership came in from the DFW Metroplex and went into East Texas, walked in and told the people, every one of you in this group and family named them out loud in front of everybody and said, you're no longer members of this church. Get out and don't come back kicked them out did you know after that that church began to flourish <laughs> god they kicked the witchcraft out the door but you'll find that you'll find the the 
the blackballing. Is this making sense? Man, as I'm preaching this, I felt like something is not wanting me to preach this. But this is the greatest hindrance, I believe, to denominations, to uh, churches, to families, is witchcraft. It's hindering people from their very destiny in God. And that was one of the things I really admired about um, Barton Stone in the Cambridge Revival because he was Presbyterian. And God, he was a brilliant man, and he had a humble heart, and he saw Cambridge break out. And I mean, you guys know, major move of God. It spread to where it, it became known as the second great awakening in our nation, affected the entire nation before it was all said and done. But while it, it happened at his church, it was seven straight days of heaven just exploding. And after that, though, all the Presbyterian church, his leadership began to pressure him, and they had a problem with the fact that during the revival, he was working with, as a Presbyterian minister, working with the Baptist leadership and the Methodist. And so the Presbyterian leadership told him, you need to shut it down like every other time. And well, Barton Stone said this, he said, I'm, I'm leaving the Presbyterian church because it has a party spirit. What he meant by party is sectarian. And he said, it's not of God. And he said, basically, if I could paraphrase, my Baptist brothers and my Methodist brothers are my brothers in Christ, just like a Presbyterian brother. And he had a, Barton Stone had a real heart for the greater unity of the body of Christ. It was a big theme with him, okay? And he put a stop to that. He left the Presbyterian church, and he had others of various denominations that joined with him, and they began to host God's presence, and thank God for that. But let me tell you, every great move of God that's going to happen is going to be challenged by illegitimate authority, ungodly control. The Pharisees. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees represent man's control, doesn't it? And Jesus came in there like a wild card that, that was basically just what I see the Father doing, I do. What I hear him saying, I say. Who rose up? Man's control. Trying to shut down the move of God. And Jesus never submitted to it. And I think about, and I'm going to close with this, I think about various people that's had to leave different churches or different organizations because of that control. But let's get back to this. As God's family tree, his blood covenant people, he's given us his word and his spirit, and that's enough. If we really have the word and we really have the move of the spirit, we're not going to have to turn to all these other gimmicks. In fact, gimmicks aren't going to really help people. We need the true move of God. Amen? All right, so Lord, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you for the word that you've given us, the spirit that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful as your blood covenant people, to preach the whole counsel of God under a mighty anointing and the power of the spirit, to see Book of Acts Christianity, and to break the power of witchcraft control to not come up under it and not submit to it and not go along with it. But Lord, help us to break through that into our destiny, into what God has for us. I thank you, Lord, for it in Jesus' mighty name.
There's great things coming. And River of Life, listen, you can go ahead and go to a screener. We're going to pray for people. But I'm telling you, River of Life, we've been in.